Welcome to the grand finale of the Money Mindset series on the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Dan J. Gregory, and I am committed to hunting down the secrets of business mastery and human performance. My goal for the Unstoppable Podcast is to share insights from some of the most successful entrepreneurs, inspiring thought leaders, world-class athletes, and prominent celebrities to help you to become unstoppable in business and life. Each week, I'll be bringing you a new interview with an inspiring person and sharing my own results as I pursue the answers to the question, how can I create the ultimate edge in my business, make a significant impact, and live an extraordinary life? Welcome to episode 84 of the Unstoppable Podcast and the grand finale of the Money Mindset series with very special guest, Garrett Gunderson. In this highly insightful finale to the Money Mindset series, Garrett not only reveals the secrets to wealth creation, but he also shares unique strategies to create an abundant mindset in the entrepreneurial world. Garrett has helped countless business owners to create efficient wealth strategies that fit their unique strengths. And during this episode, you have the opportunity to lean into the mind of a financial genius. Garrett Gunderson is a chief wealth architect at Wealth Factory and author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths that Are Destroying Your Prosperity. Garrett helps entrepreneurs to optimize cash flow, streamline their finances, and keep more of their hard-earned money so they can make more powerful investments in their best wealth creator, their business. Garrett has appeared on ABC News, on Fox, CNBC, and many, many more. He's a paid contributor at Forbes and many other high-level publications and podcasts. Before I tell you a little bit more about what we've got in store for you today and what you have the opportunity to learn, as this is the final part of the Money Mindset series, let's briefly recap what we've covered so far during the series. The Money Mindset series was inspired by the overwhelming response that I received to my own episode about money shame, where I shared my own journey with debt and my relationship with money. Over the course of this mini-series, I've brought you a range of top financial and money mindset experts to help you improve your financial well-being and your relationship with money. The series began with The Art of Money with special guest Barry Tesla, where we went deep into how to create a positive relationship with money. Part two continued with Money, A Love Story with Kate Northrup, where we discussed how developing financial freedom begins by developing your own self-love. And we talked about simple money practices that can help you build a more positive, loving relationship with money. Part three was about financial well-being with Chris Budd, where we discussed how financial well-being is not about living the life that others think you should have, but rather the life that you want to have, as well as discussing Chris's simple, practical advice for enhanced financial well-being. Part four then continued with The Power of Financial Freedom with Austin Netsley, where he shared how he went from studying engineering to becoming an investor, best-selling author, and highly successful entrepreneur. And we discussed some of the money principles, beliefs, and practices that have enabled Austin to rapidly ascend in the world of business. And then finally, in part five last week, the episode was all about how to attract abundance with Christy Deer. And we delved into everything from money blocks to the law of attraction to help you bring more abundance into your life and unlock your inner rich. In today's grand finale with Garrett Gunderson, you will learn how to recognize if you're operating from a scarcity mindset and how to conquer it by destroying your footprints of failure. Garrett shares the critical difference between financial freedom and financial independence and discusses a simple asset allocation strategy for securing your wealth. 
before outlining the three most important financial safety factors to safeguard your money. And we explore how to create financial efficiency with the 4I formula. This is a deeply powerful episode with tons of actionable insights. So get ready to take notes and learn how to build, maximize, and secure your wealth. Introducing Garrett Gunderson to light the fireworks and close the money mindset series. Let's get into it. Garrett, welcome to the Unstoppable podcast. It's an absolute delight to have you here for the finale of the Unstoppable podcast money mindset series. I'm really excited to get into your knowledge and really get into your brain when it comes to maximizing your financial abundance. So first of all, Garrett, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and what you do right now and and a little bit about how you got into what you do right now? Well, I think that what's unique about what we do is that we understand that personal finance is actually supposed to be personal. And that means that if someone, I don't care like how much luck, savings, discipline, rate of return or financial advisor anyone has, if they can't conquer the scarcity mentality when it comes to their money, nothing will matter because that destroys everything. Scarcity is the greatest destroyer of wealth. And that's what I would like consider the consumer condition where people look to, you know, they expect someone else to do it for them. They expect uh, you know, like it's built on fear, doubt and worry or this concept of there's not enough or there's a finite pie. And so even though we help people keep more of what they make and focus on how they can improve and boost their cash flow. And the number one thing we do is show people how to achieve financial independence in a framework that gets them there within three to seven years, three years if they're you know pretty frugal already and, and in a decent financial situation, five years if maybe they've dug themselves a hole and seven years if they're kind of like me addicted to a really high quality lifestyle that yes. don't want to give that stuff up. <laughs> but uh, but that's that's what we do is really kind of help them understand that they're their greatest asset, not some stock bond or piece of real estate. And that if they understand how they could expand their means and produce more, that that's going to be the key. And we really encourage entrepreneurship and scaling business all around, you know, getting their financial house in order so they don't want, they don't have like fear and worry or they don't have a, like I want them to have peace of mind. I want them to have financial clarity and financial confidence. So it's kind of this merger between personal development and personal finance. Awesome. Awesome. Now, Garrett, so when I was growing up, I was, you know, I dreamed of either being a racing car driver or an astronaut or an explorer. And I ended up going into banking and then finally found my path to entrepreneurship. Tell me a bit about your upbringing. Was this your dream dream um, when you were young? What did you want to do when you were growing up? Yeah, two things I want to do when I was growing up. One was be a stand-up comedian and two was be a rock star. Nice. So I basically took that and applied it to the world of finance. I, I, my wife always teases me. She's like, there's no chance you could be a stand-up comedian. You're just not funny enough. I'm like... Babe, you don't even understand when I'm on stage, people laugh their ass off when I'm telling jokes. She goes, you're helping them make money. They're being kind. So what I love is that dream of being a stand-up comedian kind of comes out since I do so much speaking. And then also kind of the rock star side of things is part of it is I just like to perform. And I think finance is normally a dry, drab, just absolute boring topic for most people. And I'm kind of breeding and breathing life into that. And at the same time, uh, you know, I throw a little rock star party once a year where I do at least perform one or two songs on the guitar. And uh, my kids think I'm pretty good at guitar. So, I mean, I've got a decent thing going on going there. But, yeah, I got into money and finance because I owned a car detailing business and won $5,000 for being the young entrepreneur of the year. Wow. And unlike other teenagers, I want to invest that money, man, because I was living in this small, shitty coal mining town with 12,000 people. And I, I thought my way out and the way to prove that I was successful was to become a millionaire 
And so I had this five grand, wanted to turn that into a million somehow. And that was a hell of a rocky road, but it led me into the financial services field. Wow. So, so well, how, how was that path then? So when you, when you made that decision, what, could, you, could you kind of summarize some of the, some of the challenges you faced that have now shaped who you are today? Sure. So, so I won that money and I immediately thought, okay, I need to invest this. But look, my, my, you know, half of my family is this Italian immigrant family, uh, the Aquino family, and their kind of money management method was to actually literally put money in Folgers coffee cans and put them in the cellar. It was also rumored that my aunt buried money in her backyard and they lived like paupers. I mean, shit, they had a decent amount of money, but you'd never know it because I think they had the first dollar they ever earned. So they were kind of living out this scarcity mindset. And so when I told my mom, hey, I want to invest this money, she's like, well, you're under 18. I'm not going to sign off as a custodian. Just put it in the bank. And I was like, you know, that was pretty boring to me. But at the same time, I just started to interview people I knew that had money. So the president of the credit union was actually a client of mine from a car detailing standpoint. They would repossess vehicles. I would clean them for them. So I asked him where to put it. And when he told me a CD, man, I did the math. I think most people know the rule of 72. You take the interest rate, divide it into 72, and it tells you how many number of years it takes for your money to double. And dude, that seemed like an eternity for me as a kid at that <laughs> time. So I went and talked to my uncle because he had more money than, you know, he had a bigger house than anyone I knew anyway. And my aunt said that he made all of his money by being an executive and a VP for a large conglomerate, not making money in the stock market. So the more people I asked questions to, kind of the more confused I became. But when I was 18, there was a firm that was kind of a bottom feeder firm that was just willing to say, oh, look, man, just take your take your money and rather than invest the 5,000, take $70 a month and put it into this variable universal life insurance policy, which was basically mutual funds inside of an insurance plan that cost 20% more than other insurance plans. And they showed me this stupid 18% rate of return every year. And they said, hey, look, in, in 30, 40 years, you're gonna be a multimillionaire off your little $70 a month. But dude, I was a nerd because I went to school and I was in college and I was had an econometrics course. And I actually did a thesis on will this work out? And it had not only a 100% chance that it wasn't ever going to show the returns that they showed me, wow. but it had a 98.7% chance that it was going to fail, funded at $70 a month. And you know what? I just started asking more questions, and that's where people came, and they said, look, man, we'll offer you an internship. But Dan, here's the code for internship. Hey, you could take this test and pass it. Tell people you're a financial advisor, but what we want you to do is bring your family and friends to us so we can peddle them shitty products. And that's kind of how I got my start, unfortunately. Wow. Um, you know, but it also taught me a lot because in 98, 99, my family and friends thought I was a little boy genius wonder like, oh, man, our money's doing well because everyone was doing well during that time. Mm. But in 2000, when the market went down and my firm was telling me to, to feed them a line of crap like, oh, you're in it for the long haul and it takes money to make money and dollar cost average and the market's on sale and all this nonsense. Man, I wasn't wanting to go to family reunions and look them in the eye. They're awkward enough half the time. Now I got to go and I'm not making them money or losing their money. And I just wasn't willing to tell them what everyone else was telling them. So fortunately, I had this mentor in college that used to be a fund manager. He managed $5 billion in muni bond funds and was the number one guy. And I just happened to get, I was a business senator. He showed up to the school and dude, I immediately made friends with him and he helped me. He helped advise me between March and May of 2000 to get all my clients but one completely out of the stock market. And that's when my real financial journey began because I had to ask better questions and I never wanted to go through that pain again. And hell, I was an arrogant young kid telling people I didn't know what the hell I did. That was not an easy moment in my life.
Mm. Mm, powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. So I want to tap into this this piece around the scarcity mindset you've mentioned a couple of times. Uh, and I know for sure that when I when I first started out, at least unconsciously, I was operating from that 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 mindset myself. And you know, it was showing up through fear, self-doubts, low self-worth, and all these kind of things at the beginning of my journey. And, you know, I've kind of worked hard and this part of this podcast has been about sharing that journey, the whole unstoppable way about moving from that transitioning from that scarcity place to the abundance. But Talk to me about your experience of scarcity mindset and how, how does someone firstly identify that they're in that mindset and what's the first kind of steps they need to take to get out of that? Love that question because I don't think most people recognize they're in scarcity all the time. Um, like when I remember this guy that I knew really well, financial guy that got into some financial trouble, had some real estate investments. He was over leveraged. It didn't work out. And when he called me, I was walking him through everything. And I was just having a conversation saying, look, man, you get to learn a major lesson here because there's other people that are going to go down this path again. What you choose to learn from this is up to you. And if you don't learn the lesson, it's going to repeat and it's going to get worse. But every word from his mouth was that scarcity was real, that all the evidence that he had because of his losses and the lack of money at the moment. And so what happens with scarcity, it's when we get to a place where the problems of the world or our own personal circumstances seem bigger than the vision we have for life. I'm going to say that again. It's when the problems, either our own and our own circumstance or what we see in the world, seem insurmountable or bigger than the vision we have for our own life. So that's when people kind of lose sight of a powerful future. And people that, that gain power are ones that have a compelling future that they're living into, that they're excited about, that they're inspired by, and that is bigger than any minutia, bigger than any situation, bigger than any you know bad relationship, bigger than any loss, that they can say, look, I'm committed, and that's where people get extraordinarily resourceful. It doesn't take money to make money. That's a scarcity mindset. It takes value creation. It takes solving problems. It takes serving others. It's a resourcefulness issue. Are we willing to be more resourceful regardless of the existing resources we currently have? And it's not just about our resources. It's about other people that would be willing to step up and be part of what we have if we have a compelling enough vision. And my feeling is scarcity destroys vision. And vision is the rarest commodity in the world. Vision is the thing that people lack the most. And those that have the most compelling, clear, articulated vision are the one that drive the economic engine of the world because that's what people are willing to follow because they're looking for those leaders. So wealth isn't predicated upon, did we put enough money in a mutual fund? Wealth isn't predicated upon, did we scrimp, sacrifice, and save and set enough money for retirement? Instead, it's really built by people being more entrepreneurial and saying, look, I see the problems of the world, and rather than letting them cripple me, I'm going to be compelled to be one of the ones to solve those problems because the bigger the problem, the bigger the payoff. Mm. Mm. I'm fi- I feel that. And now, now the next piece is then, so ha- having identified if you're in that scarcity mindset, what, what, what are the components of an abundance-orientated mindset? So what's, what is the mindset that's then required for the accumulation of wealth? Like one thing that, that people have to recognize is abundance doesn't mean that we frolic holding hands in a field and everything always goes our way. Yeah. I mean, hell, if we want to frolic in a field holding hands and sing Kumbaya, nothing's stopping us there. But abundance doesn't mean that it goes exactly according to plan. What it means is that we have more resilience. What it means is that we can see past 
the existing situation to what we can do next. And abundance says, even if I don't have the solutions, that I'm just an idea or relationship away from solving anything that I'm facing. So abundance is about innovation, human ingenuity, resourcefulness. Abundance is about value creation, uh, you know, and, and really abundance is a paradigm where people think about being producers, meaning they look to create more value in the world than they take from it. You know, so if I just use kind of a little bit of a guide, scarcity would say, if someone's profitable, that's evidence of deception and coercion. Abundance mm. would say profit is evidence of value creation. Absolutely. That's two different paradigms, you know? So where there would be like fear on the scarcity side, there would be faith on the abundance side. You know, that this is the kind of thing like it, uh, here's scarcity. Someone says, hey, Garrett, I've always heard you should live within your means. That means I need to budget, cut back and shrink. Right. That's what scarcity would say. Mm -hmm. But abundance would say I need to live within my means. That means I have to continually seek to find ways to expand my means and keep more of what I have through financial intelligence. It's the same statement with two completely different outlooks based upon which side of the coin someone's looking. And so we can see scarcity based upon the footprints of failure, the footprints of complaints, the footprints of negativity. And if everyone could just grasp that wealth is built through committed conversations. So when people say talk is cheap, that's from scarcity. Meaning mm -hmm. if someone doesn't value their word, if someone says something but they never commit to it, like then yeah, of course that's, that is cheap, but cheap talk is cheap. Powerful, wealthy conversations is actually what drives the engine of exchange. And exchange creates wealth. And so those people that are willing to speak the words and commit to living into them in a way that others won't, like, look, man, I, I once said I want to I take Killing Sacred Cows to the New York Times. And I thought that was a big deal at the time because I still had my small-minded coal mining voice in my head of scarcity going, you don't even know how the hell to get it to New York Times. Hmm. You, you've only sold a thousand books so far and it's self-published. You only have a publisher. Like, right. But I got up and I just declared, okay, in front of 85 people, I'm going to take this book to New York Times. Now, I was scared. My palms were sweating. My voice cracked. But then I sat down and at the end of the day, this guy came up to me. His name's Carter. And he goes, you know what? I think I can help you with that. I'm in the world of marketing and I can research who helps do these things and found me someone, nice. right? Yes. How did that happen? I spoke it. Mm. And so, you know, scarcity would never have you speak that. Abundance would say, even in the face of not knowing, even in the face of having some fear, I'm still going to declare something. And, you know, now, like when I walked home that day or not walked home, when I got home that day, driving home, my wife was, I told her, I said, hey, I'm going to take this book to New York Times. She's like, she was nonchalant, like, yeah, of course you are. And I was like, no, I don't even know how to do it, but I'm, I'm committed to it. She goes, are you sure that's even a big enough goal? Wow. And I'm going, damn, <laughs> calls me out right now. I'm feeling like scared. But yeah, so, so now I'm looking back, I hit it. Why did I hit it? Because that's what I aimed for. That's what I was committed to. I didn't have cheap talk. I was committed to that. And it wasn't always easy to get there. So now I'm saying, all right, budgeting sucks. My next book is going to be the most impactful highest selling book of the next decade in the world of finance. That's a little bit more of a stretch. It's a little bit more compelling, but you know what? It's having me write the book differently, research mm -hmm. the book differently, think about what I could do, reach out to my clients that are bestsellers. Like 
Hal Elrod that's crushing it with Miracle Morning or, you know, talking to other people that that have done New York Times that like I talked to Kiyosaki, you know, what, what how did they do Rich Dad Poor Dad? Like I'm going out there because my vision is bigger. It takes embracing abundance and it doesn't mean that we don't have moments of doubt. We don't have moments of fear. But what do we choose to focus on in those moments? And there's two ways to escape scarcity that's really quite elegant, but not always easy. And shit, I know I'm, I'm going on and on on this whole thing, but I, I want to make sure to answer the question all the way. Powerful. Yeah. So here's the first way to get out of scarcity. If you ever find yourself, you know, in any level of negative self-talk, of this isn't possible, this isn't, this can't happen, I don't want to do, like, all, all that kind of footprints of failure, footprints of, of giving up or finding yourself wanting to sacrifice, here's what you do. Number one, rather than getting stuck in you feeling like things are bad and then calling someone and complaining, which is what a lot of people do, they call mom, they call the people that will say it's not your fault. And that's fine if you want to make one phone call that way. But here's the real phone call to make. Call the people in your life and in your world that you love talking to that are uplifting, that are inspiring, that when you see them call your phone, you want to answer the phone. They're your cheerleaders. They're the they're your mentors. They're whoever it is, right? But people that you can actually deliver value for, and rather than in that moment talking about your problems, ask them compelling questions like, what are you most excited about that you're working on? What one thing would take you to the next level if you had it right now? Is there any relationship? Is there any idea that you're really looking for? Is there any resource? Like, you know, what is the biggest obstacle you're facing? What is the biggest opportunity you have? You just find out if you could do one of two things. Either one, connect them to someone that can really make a difference in what they're doing so that you've helped them out. Or two, personally make a difference because you know how to solve or support anything that they just talked about. And then when they acknowledge and appreciate you for doing that, it's so hard to be in scarcity when people are appreciating you. Because when things appreciate, it means that they go up in value. And when someone appreciates you, it allows you to recognize your own true value because people discount the hell out of their own value. And if people could recognize that there's so much wealth and, and opportunity in recognizing that. And the second thing to do if you're fi finding yourself in that situation, you either call a peer or a mentor and you tell them what you're facing because when we're in scarcity, it's hard to ask the questions that get us to the place of abundance. It's hard to find those solutions because the higher the emotion, the lower the financial intelligence. And if I could call someone that's not attached to the problem like I am, they can ask me questions I'm not asking them myself so I can get out of it quicker. But most people, Dan, they don't want to do that because they'd have to have an admission that they're not abundant 100% of the time. But hell, it's actually more endearing and authenticity is a currency that binds us if we're willing to just be true and say what's actually happening rather than suffer it along the way. Because I'll tell you what, scarcity has a stench to it and we could pretend we're not in it when we're in it, but people recognize it. They feel it energetically. It will destroy our wealth. Powerful stuff, my man. Both of those for me, I've used both of those strategies and they were, they were highly transformative for me. When I first started my business, that piece around getting an appreciation, you know, I was giving my stuff away for free at the beginning, but the amount of appreciation I received, it started to make me see that and feel the value. And that's when things really started to shift for me. And even when I started talking about eliminating debt, you know, just the very, very essence we spoke before the show about the, uh, the episode I talked to you about in terms of money shame, the moment I went through that, even when I was doing it again, all that pressure just came off just because I felt like it lifted. So those two strategies alone, you know, I've experienced both of those deeply. I think it's incredibly powerful stuff. So Garrett, in terms of 
what prevents people from being financially free. Obviously, a scarcity mindset would be a major blockage to that. But what are the habits or behaviors are preventing people from experiencing financial freedom? And, and, and before we get into that, what, what would you define as financial freedom? Nice. That's right where I was going to go. So you, you read my mind there. Um, or maybe great minds think alike, whichever one we want to say, right? So uh, financial freedom, my definition is it's a state of being where money is not the primary reason or excuse why we do or don't do something. So it's a state of mind. It's, a, it's not a state of what we have. It's when money is not the primary reason or excuse why we do or don't do something. Now, that's financial freedom. Financial independence, which I mentioned earlier, is a place where we have enough cash flow coming in that's recurring that would cover our basic living expenses. That can come from one of two places, investments or entrepreneurial income. What I mean by entrepreneurial income is that income that comes in even if you don't show up the next day at the office. Entrepreneurial income is not the time when you're being a technician and when you're required to be there to make the money, but it's when you have a team, a vision, or something that can operate without your direct involvement. And look, either of these things don't mean that they're completely passive. They still require monitoring, maintenance, and management over time. It's just that you could go a day or a week and it would still come in and it wouldn't be compounding the amount of work you have to do when you come back. So if we can get financially independent, then It is so powerful because it means every dollar we earn is no longer encumbered to take care of our lifestyle and instead can be transferred into building more assets to create more cash value, which can create exponential growth. It is absolutely powerful. Financial freedom is when we understand, okay, look, when people like there's three measures of worth. The first measure is price. So price is what we pay for something. The second measure is cost. That just takes into consideration the economic impact. And I'll give an example. The third measure is value, which is our overall personal feeling of satisfaction and and enjoyment. So price, there's a lot of people in the world that price is their God. I mean, they look for the lowest price. They're misers. They pinch pennies till they get blisters on their fingers. (laughs) And, you know, like people that are so price focused miss out on a lot of value. Because rarely is the highest value things in the world the lowest price. Mm, absolutely. And this leaves people to a poverty and scarcity mindset to focus on price alone. So there's things that are low price but high cost. So I always think of the example. If an airplane told me, you know, if an airline said, hey, look, we can fly you for one-fifth of the price of what you're paying right now on Delta. And uh, the way we do it is we just cut out maintenance and we don't train our pilots. And I'm like, hell, I'm not getting on that flight no matter (laughs) how cheap it is, right? Um, So that's low price, high cost. In the world of finance, it's it's like, okay, looking for the cheapest financial person might be low price but high cost because you lose performance. You lose money. You don't, you know, they don't save you on the things that they could have saved you on or help you boost and understand who you are, right? So that's price versus cost. But value is just overall enjoyment in life, which a lot of people miss out on if they're just price conscious, right? So something could be on sale and just still not be something I purchased because it just isn't valuable enough. Or there could be something that it's a premium, but it's valuable enough for me and it makes it, I enjoy it. So we look at those three measures, price, cost, and value, and it really helps us understand financial freedom because it's not that money isn't a factor. It's just not the primary factor. Because I hear statements far too often like, I can't afford it. 
I'm like, that is the most debilitating declaration that means that you've absolutely turned your brain off from thinking instead of asking, what would it take if I value that enough? Yes. How could I afford that? Mm. What, what could I do to, to deliver more value in the marketplace? What other things could I monetize? How could I reach more people? It, it, here's the simple way. How can I either reach more people or impact the people I'm reaching more deeply? It always comes down to those two things to figure out value. That's, that's the value equation, really, or the impact equation. How do I impact people? deeply that I'm currently working with or how do I impact more people with you know which takes scale leverage intelligence and stuff like that but but uh yeah that's my definition of financial freedom versus financial independence and I can't remember what the rest of the question was yeah. so, yes. so we talked about how the scarcity mindset could be a, an inhibiting factor but what about other behaviors or habits that prevent people from achieving either financial independence or financial freedom so Here's here's the big piece, and then I'm also going to lay out a framework. The big piece is a lot of people believe that investing is a game where they can use modeling techniques, meaning I'm going to model someone else's you know investments or what they do, and so they have this kind of thought process that, in you know, hey, I read a magazine and here was someone that that struck it big, and they did it by doing an IPO or investing in a startup, and so they only see. <clears throat> excuse me, they only see a very small piece of the puzzle and instead start to speculate and gamble with their money because somewhere in their mind, someone has programmed them that high risk equals high return. Mm. But risk actually equals chance of loss. And so they invest in things that they don't know, that they don't understand, that's too far away from who they are. And then all of a sudden when it's lost, it actually creates scarcity for them. It actually takes their eye off the ball and the things that they know, things that are aligned with their value. And so that's, that's such a huge factor in how people you know, make major mistakes is that they speculate before they've got their foundation. I believe that people have to get their foundation in place first and foremost. If we have a home, we always build the foundation. We never go show people the foundation because it's not seductive. It's not sexy. It's not anything. Yeah. Unless it's cracked, then we're like, that's damn foundation is killing me. We can't even live here, right? Yeah. So we got to get people got to get their foundation in place. Then they've got to focus on safety factors. So some of what that looks like is first off, first rule, before you go and invest in these kind of things, you've got to get in the habit of paying yourself first. And this is so simplistic yet so powerful. If people will just go set up a separate bank account, different than their personal account or their business account, I like to call it a wealth capture account. It's just a checking, savings, or money market. doesn't matter what interest rate it's earning. It just matters that it's simple enough that every time they go to pay themselves, they can automatically put a portion of it as a percentage into this other account. Ideally, you work up to 18% going into that account before you spend a single dollar. Now, what this does is it eliminates the need for budgeting. Because as long as you pay yourself first, then you just have to check every month. Did you avoid borrowing any money or spending more that was, than what was left over that went into your personal account? And as long as you stay within that parameter, you're, you're free to spend how you'd like because you've already taken care of paying yourself first. Mm. Now, when you pay yourself first, then you want to build up at least six months in savings and liquidity. Most people don't do this because financial professionals aren't paid to get you into savings accounts. But here's why that's important. Think of it as a peace of mind account. If you've got that money there, you don't have to chase bad profits. If you have a health issue, you've got staying power. You can take some time off and take care of yourself. If you need to take a break from your business for a little while to help out a loved one or, hell, we're going to Italy for two months next year. I mean, you've, if you have that liquidity, you've got more options. 
But it also, as it starts to build up beyond that, it can become an opportunity fund. And unfortunately, a lot of people have been taught that we should always be investing. You should start early. You should always have your money invested. But the reality is the pros don't keep their money invested. Uh, I had one of my good friends, Dan Reutemann, just went to Martin Armstrong, the economist, former hedge fund manager, uh, you know, conference. And basically, Martin was like, he was the hedge fund manager of the year in 1999. He was only invested 25% of the time. 75% of the time, he was sitting in cash. And wow. two of the years that we got the highest returns when we were actually managing money, which we don't do anymore, we got a 41% return in, in 2001 and a 44% return in 2002, being out of the market 80% of the time. So here's the thing, most people make that mistake of automatically investing instead of automatically saving. You wanna automatically save and deliberately invest and only invest when the timing is actually appropriate, number one, but number two, when you're investing in something aligned with your investor DNA. And investor DNA is when we understand our competencies, our drivers, our values, and instead of diversifying, we stay focused and aligned with things that make sense to us. And if something doesn't make sense, then we keep it in our foundational and safety measures and only speculate with 10 or 20% of our overall net worth. Because if you ever speculate with more than that, then it can actually harm you as the asset, your ability to earn, because that loss could actually lose you know, your mind type of thing when you're pissed off or you're frustrated or you lost your life savings. And look, I just wrote a book called What Would the Rockefellers Do, which talks about how the Rockefellers are on their sixth generation of wealth, mm. where the Vanderbilts, 54 years after Cornelius died, the first Vanderbilt died broke. And look, Anderson Cooper's a Vanderbilt who didn't even get an inheritance because, they, and they had more money than the U.S. Treasury at one time, the Vanderbilts. Crazy, crazy. So they didn't invest in what they knew. They invested in crazy things and schemes outside of their core business, and it destroyed an empire. Yet the Rockefellers have built their own family office, which is basically their own financial firm that only works for them, and the highly affluent and wealthy have that, and the rest of the entrepreneurs miss out on that. But if they could build a team in their financial life, just like they build a team at their business that is high quality A-teamers, they communicate with them, it's proactive, and their number one rule is we don't lose money, they would be infinitely better off moving forward. So I just gave quite a bit in a short period of time and there's still more missing pieces to that, but that's a big piece of it is we can't lose money or else it's gonna drive scarcity and we can't invest outside things we know because it's gonna create uncertainty and un uncertainty is a cousin of scarcity and you've gotta have liquidity because if you don't have liquidity and now you're burning at the red line because you have to go make money, people chase bad profits, they have high stress, that starts to destroy their own health, and there's major ramifications to that, but unfortunately, that's the way of the world when it comes to most people's poor financial decisions. Absolutely, and yeah, I've seen that happen so many times. You know, I worked in financial services for eight years, directly in banking, and saw that happen so, so many times when people hit that rock bottom moment, they've got no assets to go to, and it's, uh, you know, decision-making process during those times is not the same as it would be if it was done from an affluent state where they have resources that would be doing, making very decisions very differently. Yep. Um, so one thing I want to talk about, you, you, you talked a little bit about asset allocation in terms of paying yourself first. So what's the kind of spread people need to think about in terms of their overall income and how, how should they distribute each of, you know, into, into different pockets or buckets, how we want to describe it? Well, I came up with the 18% because of six factors that are all worth 3%. So you pay yourself first. And here's the deal, if you can't get the 18%, you just start somewhere. Progress is better than perfection, done is better than perfect. 
So if there's any action you take from the podcast, you go set up that separate account. Mm. You start paying anything. But I will say there's, you know, one one term I'll use is uh, just to keep this in uh, four eyes. I call it the four eyes. Um, they're the four eyes where people can be more efficient with their money, keep more of every dollar they make, especially business owners tend to overpay on these factors. Number one is interest. You know, interest rates have been extraordinarily low, but if people don't get a credit score over a certain amount, don't have the good cash flow reporting, and don't use proper collateral, it means that 80% of people are paying a higher interest rate than what they need. Now, if you can lower your interest rate, you keep more of your money, that helps you find money to put towards the 18%. The other eye is, you know, investments. There's hidden fees, hidden commissions, and a lot of underperforming funds that people just haven't monitored or measured to find out, is it worth it? And if they could get that money and put it back into their life rather than paying for things that aren't performing, then that's going to help them out. The next I is insurance. There's a lot of people that have duplicate coverages, duplicate cost, improper structure. Once again, if you have money that's sitting in a savings account, you could increase your deductibles or you could drop short-term type of you know, small potatoes type policies and only insure catastrophic things and handle all the inconsequential things with your cash. So all of a sudden you're getting kind of a return off your savings just because of the money it's saving you on insurance. So there's three of the eyes. The fourth eye, I know we got an international base here, but it, I just say IRS, but just any tax service organization, whether it's Canada Revenue Service or whoever it is in, in your country, you know, I find that most entrepreneurs and in our estimate, in our study, it's 93% of entrepreneurs overpay on their taxes. And this is one of the biggest bills that people face. So if you get those four eyes and you put that back into your life before you even save an extra penny, then you start putting that towards the 18%. Make sure you get at least six months savings set up before you start allocating money into other investments. But if you're a business owner, before you go fund some other investment outside of your expertise, outside of your business, I want you to consider three Ps inside of your business. One is, do you have the right people? And go back to the three measures of worth. The wrong people might be low price, but high cost your organization because they mm -hmm. occupy time in your mind. And Steve Jobs said that the highest return he ever got was hiring A-teamers because he got a 100 to 1 return. He said they were more expensive, but they were infinitely more productive. And IBM did a project where they said an A-teamer was 5,200% more profitable for an organization than a B or C-teamer. So you, before you go invest in something else, invest in your people. Invest in processes so that you have a systematic way for those people to perform without your involvement every step of the way. So having good operations, which might even mean hiring an operations person. And the 3P... Third P is what I call procedure, which is really means automated procedures, meaning the use and leverage of technology so that you can create scale in your business. So you know what's going on more in your boardroom than these other boardrooms. So make sure your business is as profitable as, as possible and make sure that you don't have any interest rates on your loans that are higher than the interest rates you're earning with investments. Because if, you're, if your investments are a lower interest rate than your, than your uh, loan to a bank, pay those loans off. Consider that part of your allocation with your money once you get your six months of savings in place. And then rather than think about complete diversification, think about focus. Andrew Carnegie said he put all of his eggs in one basket and watched it like a hawk. Warren mm. Buffett says, I buy, you know, he's like, long term, I'd like to do 20 investments. He just has more money than 20 investments. <laughs> but he says most people should look at that over their lifetime, where most people are making far too many investments that they can't relate to, that they don't understand. They don't have exit strategies around. They don't know why it would work what the value proposition is, which is how they benefit, how whoever they gave the money to benefits, how the marketplace benefits, why it would be sustainable, 
how they benefit today and in the future. And so before you go invest a single dollar in investments that you have to ask someone else and rely upon their advice, invest in your own investor DNA in figuring out what a good investment is for you. I have people all the time say, hey, is real estate a good investment? I'm like, to whom? I mean, it's a good <laughs> investment for people that are, that's their business and they have expertise in it. It's a terrible investment for someone that's tinkering with it and doesn't understand it. You know, someone asked me, is tax lien a good investment? I'm like, once again, it depends on who you are. Or, you know, is cash value life insurance a good investment? I'm like, it depends on your structure and how you know how to use that tool or how to fund it properly. I'm like, it, what people have to understand is risk isn't in the investment. It's in the investor and how that investor relates to the investment. So the key is build your, your baseline, you know, make sure that you have liquidity, pay off high interest rate loans, you know, and then invest and make sure your business is producing as much as possible. And once you feel like your business is funded properly and you've got that liquidity, then maybe make speculative investments with no more than 10 or 20% of your overall net worth. And to me, that's kind of the, the asset allocation model. Awesome. And it kind of leads me to my next question. I had, a, I had a guest on the show recently called Jill Stanton. She has a business called Screw the 9 to 5. And uh, she was talking about the different stage of marketing, depending on where your business is, whether you're a startup, you've hit a certain level of growth, and then the next level of growth and the next level of growth and how the activities and responsibilities shift in your business as you progress your uh, business and as it grows. I was really fascinated to think about that in terms of a financial standpoint. So what what should someone's priority be when they're in the kind of startup phase in the business versus when they're in that real growth stage? How how do those priorities differ and how, how do people need to think about things differently when they're in the different stages of business? One of my great friends, Rich Christensen, wrote a book called The Zigzag Principle. And in that book, he says, you know, you want to you want to have a vision, but you want to zigzag your way there. You don't run straight towards it or else you run out of gas. Yeah. His compelling argument is, you always focus on cash flow first. He says, hell, he would get out in the street in a pink tutu to make sure his business had cash flow first. So cash flow is the priority. It's the lifeblood of the business. Then you get resources. Then you go to scale. But then it's always refocusing on cash flow to make sure that this thing is viable and everything that way. So I think a lot of business owners fall in love with their business ideas, fall in love with their business, and therefore put too much into quick or try to overdevelop or try to offer too many things and keep and make it too complex. Hell, I'm guilty of that times in my life. So if instead it was like, you know, it's kind of like the lean startup. That, that's a great book. You know, it's talking about what's the minimum viable product, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow from that, and then start to add the resources, then start to expand, then scale it. Because I think some people try to go to scale a little bit too quickly and they're disconnected from the business or the financial reports of the business. Or they're growing so quickly that it starts to kill the cash flow. Or we grew so fast in 2010 that our customer satisfaction went down because we weren't able to work with them as closely. We didn't have the customer intimacy that we were used to having. We took on 350 people in a year. Our normal cap is 125. So we had 12% of people that didn't like us, would have preferred to refund. And hell, we had to refund a bunch of them and then get clear about who we really were and what we did because we scaled the wrong part of our business. So I think that, you know, it goes cash flow scale or cash flow resources scale, cash flow resources scale. And what he talks about is you put guardrails so you never go outside of the bounds. You have your, your you know, non-negotiables, non-acceptables. You create your business rules and then you stick to them so that you don't find yourself in that trouble or making that mistake 
or going all in and not having it work out on the timing because business is a series of imperfection. Business doesn't go exactly according to plan. Sometimes it's a surprise for the best. Sometimes it's a surprise for the worst. But the thing is, those that have plenty of cash have staying power and they can handle it. Mm -hmm. So speaking of books, I would like to talk a little bit about your book, Killing Sacred Cows. Firstly, you know, we've mentioned that uh, in passing through the, through the session. And, and, you know, for those people who don't know, you probably think, what, what the heck is that? So I'm interested to know, first of all, where did the title come from and what does the book represent and what, what, does, it, what does it offer the reader? I was sitting down with Stephen Palmer, my co-author. Uh, I remember it was December of, of 2007 and we're in a library in St. George, Utah. And we're about to do some writing. And I just looked up to him and I said, dude, you ready to kill some sacred cows? <laughs> and, uh, and he says to me, he goes, man, that should be the title of the book. And, I, and so I texted this guy that was really kind of a uh, spiritual mentor of mine. And I said, what do you think about the title, Killing Sacred Cows? He goes, it'll get a lot of recognition. It's a little bit harsh. And I was like, done. We're, definitely, we're going for it. We're going to be in the, you know, let people like, let it confront them a little bit. Because sacred cow, you know, biblically is about these unquestioned beliefs that people would worship, right? Like the, mm. like these golden cows and stuff like that. And that no matter what someone would say, they didn't listen to it because that was just tradition. That was just what you did. That's, you know, from the time you were a kid. And when it comes to money, we get a lot of these sacred cows or traditions that aren't helpful. They're actually born of the scarcity mindset and therefore leads us astray. And here's the thing. That book is dedicated to the nine most prevalent, like the most persuasive financial myths that are hard to detect and see because enough people have looked at, at it through the eyes of the myth that it actually becomes common knowledge is what people might call it. But it's commonly harming people. And the reason why we have such a huge failure rate at people becoming financially independent and doing and, and you know, having their financial house in order. So I went with the uh, very subtle lies that people don't recognize. And I really feel like there's three revolutionary concepts in the book. Number one is finite pie and giving people an argument that if they have a money problem, it's never a money problem. It's a relationship or an idea problem. And that that's what drives all of the financial capital in the world anyway. And I help them detect and understand when scarcity is getting in the way of them building more wealth and why that leads to levels of guilt, leads to levels of like how to deal with family members in that. And then there's two other chapters. One is called Avoid Debt Like the Plague. 99% of the population defines debt improperly. And therefore, if it's defined improperly, they don't know what they're avoiding or how to handle it properly. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's a pretty powerful chapter. And there's another one called Self-Insurance. Um, that's another kind of revolutionary chapter, which says it gives the equation of how to have the lowest cost of insurance permanently but handle 100% of your catastrophic events that it never confiscates your wealth. And man, I've had a lot of financial people love that chapter. The people that were in the financial business said that changed their lives. So there's other good chapters, but those are the three that are probably most impactful. Well, yeah, I was checking it out in preparation for the show. And it was, as I was reading the kind of the, the description of the book, this is a must read book. I've got to get this. And I've, I've got a list of must-read books, and it, you know, for the, for my listeners on the podcast, one of their ways to, to give back is often to refer books to me, and uh, this is really at the top of the list now. I want to get into that. But uh, did you say that you're writing another book now? Budgeting sucks. Is that in the pipeline? Or is that already already released? So uh, I'll just tell you. First of all, I just a few weeks ago um, just finally did the audiobook to Killing Sacred Cows, so that book is fresh on my mind. Nice. And I am going to admit to the listeners, I apparently don't know how to read. That took me probably three hours longer than expected from stuttering, emphasizing the wrong damn word. <laughs> so, 
man, that was painful. But it was cool to kind of go through that book because that book's kind of written like how an attorney would prepare for a, a major case where it just kind of builds on the thing the whole way through to help kind of eliminate a scarcity at every level. Um, but I wrote a book called What Would the Rockefellers Do that just got released this year. So I'm really excited about that book. But I have two more books I'm writing that I'm, I'm in third phase of one manuscript and fourth phase of another one. One's called The Five-Day Weekend. That one will probably be released first with Bard Press, which is my favorite publisher in the world. Nice. And then the other one is called Budgeting Sucks, although the publishers hate the title. But they, <laughs> I just, they just don't understand the powerful of that, how powerful that title is because it resonates at the core with people. And they just don't like the word sucks. And I'm like, I don't really care what people like. I care what's entering the conversation in the person's head. So, yeah, so Budgeting Sucks uh, really kind of lays out this five-part framework of how people achieve financial independence in three to seven years. Five day weekend is how do you get more, you know, this is an industrial philosophy of working five days a week and taking two days off. How do you get it where, you know, you mine to, to business for two days of the week and then you have five days that go completely towards purpose, enjoyment, fulfillment, and all that kind of stuff. And not that they have to be separated, but that just to get people to out of this mindset of if I just work hard enough, I'm going to get where I want to be. Hard work with bad philosophy equals bankruptcy. Hard work with bad philosophy equals financial failure. Hard work with bad philosophy equals destroyed marriages. I mean, I am I'm definitely passionate about solving that issue. Awesome. I would like to touch on that in terms of Garrett, the entrepreneur. Obviously, we've been talking about your expertise, but I'd like to talk a little bit about how you operate uh, your business and how you've got it geared up and you know, how, what your lifestyle and business lifestyle looks like. Would you mind just walking through kind of what uh, what a typical week or a typical day looks like for you in terms of work-life balance and how you, you manage your priorities? Yeah, definitely. Um, first of all, my mission is one million entrepreneurs to economic independence by the time I die. One million. And the only way I do that isn't by meeting with people one-on-one -on -one myself, but it's to curate and to find the best talent in the world that subscribe to the same philosophy and that has expertise to help people get there. So my main venture that isn't really a public knowledge of the of the name is called Ripwater. It's my intellectual property and production company. Cool. And that owns all of my intellectual property that I license to some of my main companies. Like Wealth Factory, I'm the main partner in, but I've got three other partners. I've got another firm, Optic Financial, that I do um, very specific deals because of my intellectual property company. I've got another company, Garda Financial. I've got financial guys that are now wanting to do more and more stuff with us. So a lot of my days are like Fridays. I do a lot of filming on Fridays. That's a day where, you know, I'll just kind of go to the office. Uh, this last you know Friday, I did a state of the union address to Wealth Factory, just letting them know everything that we're doing and the up upgrades and updates that we're up to and kind of the evolution of our business model. I like to do that on a monthly basis. And then I filmed five videos, three on Investor DNA and Sole Purpose with a wealth engineer from Wealth Factory, and then I and then I went and did uh, a video for one of the program that I built for Wealth Factory, or my segment of it was called it's called Scale. It's about scaling business, and I said, how do you become an industry influencer? And then um, the other video, what was the oh? Then I just did a video to promote that program. So that was five videos I did that day. If I'm traveling and speaking, typically I'm writing books or editing my books while I'm on my flights. Um, and then, and then I'll do my talk and, uh, but I get a lot of, lot done on plane time on Mondays, Mondays are my business day. So all my strategic partners, my promotion partners, my, uh, the firms that I have ownership in, I'm doing meetings with them throughout that entire day. So we're going over, you know, 
what their objectives are. We're going over, you know, what ideas. We're I'm getting feedback. What's working? I'm doing training. Uh, that's my Mondays. It's really reserved for my business days. And then on on a day like to you know like the, the time we're recording this, it's a uh, it's a Wednesday. Wednesday I love doing like podcasts. I've got three podcasts I'll record today. Nice. Um, you know, and so. I really try to have uh, the Dan Sullivan entrepreneurial time system in effect. Mondays are buffer days. Buffer days are those preparation days, you know, before the game days. Um, focus days are those days where I'm recording, I'm on stage, I'm building new relationships because I re really comes down to there's five things that I do. I'm, I'm delivering content through writing, through speaking. I'm building new high-level relationships that can either license my stuff or promote my stuff, or teach me something, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a huge part of what I'm doing. Or I'm training the existing, you know, organizations, um, and or I'm building out new ideas, new content, new structures, or new systems to deliver that. And those are the five things I do. So I used to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching. I now don't do that anymore. And I've 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 been like I feel like I've found a brilliant team to do that. And I've done a great job of finding people who are better at that kind of stuff than I am. So I've, I was, I gave that up. You know, I, I don't do a lot of the stuff that I used to do when I started a business. Hell, when I started, I was head janitor, head bottle washer, customer <laughs> service. Um, I did everything for the yeah. most part. Now I don't, I don't even have a login to our CRMs. I mean, I, I have people that handle all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, that's, that's really, how those days work. But on the life balance side, I like to start my day writing in a five minute journal. If you guys are familiar with five minute journal, um, it's, yeah. it's a great tool. Um, I also like to write at least one thank you card. And sometimes I'll like write three in a day and then take a couple days off. Uh, I love doing that. A lot of mornings I'll work out in the mornings today. I'm actually working out in the afternoon. Um, and then I'm home every day by six o'clock with the exception of when I'm on the road. And if I'm on the road for more than four days in a month, then I take days off during the week when I'm back. And in October of 2016, I was gone 22 days. Now, some of it was Napa with my wife. Um, I learned really quickly. I, I don't ever want to do that again. And I just overextended myself for that month. I was had been home for a while because now it's like, well, the cool thing is I'm you know taking a lot of time off. I'm, I'm taking all of June and July completely off other than hosting a mastermind in Italy while I'm out there and just having friends come in because I, you know, I banked a bunch of days from, from, uh, doing the speaking and these road trips. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a little bit about it, but I'll tell you, I am consistent with date night every single week with nice. my wife. We had nice. date night last night. It was phenomenal. Actually, it was uh, hosted by Marcy Locke, who I know has been on your podcast Absolutely, before. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, Marcy hosted a dinner. We went out. We we hung out till really late last night. So uh, that was awesome. Um, I make sure to do that every week. I make sure that I always have a killer trip on the books. So Italy's on the books. A cruise with my entire family, including my sisters, my parents, is on the books. We always have. Oh, we even have a trip to Vegas where we're going to go and see some cool shows and nice. stay at a great hotel. Like we always have something to look forward to that's on the books and. Every week I meet with my wife as a business meeting to just talk about, you know, what's going on with the kids, what are the things that, here's my travel schedule, how are we doing on a scale of one to 10, 
you know, sometimes we're sipping coffee, sometimes we're sipping wine, we listen to the record player. We used to do it at my office, now we do it at the house. Nice. And it becomes, it's a pretty enjoyable little conversation, but it keeps us from having to talk about business the rest of the week because we now have reserved time for it so that we can really enjoy each other's company and not be dealing with finances outside of that meeting, not dealing with, you know, like what work needs to be done around the house or, you know, what I need to do to kind of support the kids. So that that's a lot of it. But man, I'm, I'm really strict on, on being home. And you know, if I, if I showed up after six o'clock, I mean, I, I, I say six, most of the time I'm home by four 30 or five. Nice. Nice. I mean, there's been so much I've taken, you know, learned from the show, but th- that last piece there, that's something I'm going to take away because on a personal level, that's something I need to, to get right in terms of having that, um, quality time with the part, my partner in, um, yeah, just making sure those conversations aren't taking place throughout the week as a continuation. Having that one meeting on a on a weekend will just take care of that. That's a that's a really really compelling idea. So thank you for sharing that. You bet. So I just want to finish up now. In terms of most of the listeners are entrepreneurs, business leaders. So they've been listening to the show and they've got loads of great value from our session today. For, for the listeners, where, where is the best place for them to enter your world now? So if they want to find out more about you, your work, where is the best place for them to start? Well, uh, we didn't discuss this, but I'll, I'll say this, and I guess you can edit it out if, if you want me to send them somewhere else. But if they want to do a text opt-in, I'll give them a download and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll basically buy them a copy of my new book, awesome. the What Would the Rockefellers Do? Um, so that's 801-369-7211. That's 801-369-7211. That's a United States phone number. And they just put in the subject line, WWRD, as in what would the Rockefellers do? WWRD, 801-369-7211, WWRD. Um, you know, so that's, that's, a great, uh, that's a great, and if, if that's hard, if that text opt-in doesn't work, you can go to wealthfactory.com forward slash Rockefellers forward slash book and download it there. It's better than paying $1,000 on Amazon that we're uh, you know, taking care of it. <laughs> For you right here. That's literally what it is on Amazon right wow, now. Wow. Um, but you know, it's a phenomenal book on how the the Rockefellers have gone to the sixth generation of wealth, and they've actually donated fifty million dollars to charity in the in the sixth generation um, in one year. So their and their assets grew. Where the Vanderbilts had more money than the U.S. Treasury, and they have not. You know, that family is decimated financially. I mean, some of their old homes were. Um, torn down that were mansions. They had 10 mansions. One's a, uh, owned by a state. I think it's in Rhode Island and it's now like a museum basically. Um, so there are definitely, definitely different ways to do things. And that is a really good high strategy book. Killing Sacred Cows will give you a lot of philosophy. What would the Rockefellers do? will give you a lot of strategy combined with the philosophy, including parts of my existing trust which are how I plan on perpetuating wealth. I gave actual excerpts that people could check into and look at. So I think it'd be pretty helpful. Awesome, that's really great. And uh, both of the, both of the uh, links will be in the in the show notes after the, in the episode. So um, another piece you, you've been talking about the kind of financial DNA. If someone wanted to, to 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 find out more about that side of things, where would they go to find out about those kind of things? Um, I think that so here's a couple of things: wealthfactory.com forward slash megakit. So M E G A K I T. There's some killer resources in there and wealthfactory.com forward slash scorecard. Those are some resources to help you kind of figure out a little bit more on the investor DNA side because that's something a lot of people want to know more about, but it's really something we proprietarily developed. 
They can also go to Forbes.com and follow me. I, I contribute regularly about five articles a month to Forbes as a paid contributor. So there's also some good resources there. They just look me up there. But, you know, this is all kind of stuff that we're that we're giving to them or that we, you know, but they're high value so that we can build a relationship, obviously, and hopefully over time um, get to know someone even better, see them at one of our workshops or have them in one of our programs. But, you know, I kind of believe lead with value. Mm, likewise, likewise. I love that. Well, Garrett, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I've learned an incredible amount. I cannot wait to share this. This has been a phenomenal finale for the Money Mindset series. Uh, and I just want to close on one final question, which I ask every single one of my guests, and that is, what does being unstoppable mean to you? Being unstoppable means I don't have to go alone. I, I just have to be willing to be with great people and be willing to communicate with them. Because at that point... You know, I, if I'm not feeling great, if something is a temporary roadblock or a small setback, I could learn from it and other people will be there to kind of take me along. It, you know, the saying, it's like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, <laughs> be yeah. with a lot of people, you mm. don't have a team. That's that's what it means to me. Mm, very powerful. Garrett, thank you once again for unleashing your greatness on the Unstoppable podcast. It's been absolutely mind-blowing. A great finale to the Money Mindset series. It's been a real pleasure connecting and uh, finding out more about your work as well. So thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Great interview. I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate being able to share this with everybody. So there you have it, folks. You have just been listening to the rock star of the world of finance, Garrett Gunderson. I have taken so much away from this episode. I've already listened to the episode back twice myself just to really embed some of the messages that Garrett shared. And I really encourage you to do the same and take some notes throughout the process. I hope you've enjoyed the Money Mindset series. And I really hope it's added value to you and really helped you create your own mindset changes and required to create the financial transformation that you want to create in your life. And uh, there's, many, there's much more coming up on the show. I've got an, another brand new series kicking off in December. Very special series about mastery and marketing and how you can grow your business in 2017. So it's going to be really, really impactful. I really hopefully you've taken a lot from this series and I can't wait to bring you some real rock stars again in the next series. So that's all we've got time for today. The last thing I will say to you is I am about to, to go into a launch phase of the Unstoppable Entrepreneur Program. It's my online program, a group uh, boot camp program. My clients say it's a, it's a high-level intensity program, um, but it's really designed over eight weeks to help you transform your business and get you real clarity about how you're going to find that growth center in your business. So if you're interested in finding out more about that, I'm going to be talking about this on Facebook Live. I'm going to be talking about it in the Facebook group. If you're not part of the Facebook group yet, please head over to the Unstoppable Mastermind on Facebook and join in in the conversation there. But to track through everything we're going to talk about, to stay in touch with the, 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 the webinars that's going to be coming up, I strongly encourage you to go to danjgregory.com and subscribe to my newsletter there. You'll receive all the information about the upcoming launch. I really think if you're in business and you're looking to get to the next level of growth, this program could be right for you. So without further ado, we're going to close up. Today's show notes will be over at danjgregory.com forward slash 84. Garrett has given away a phenomenal amount of resources to accompany this episode. So you're going to make sure you check that out. That's danjgregory.com forward slash 84. But that's all we've got time for today. I'll be back on Monday with the next solo round. 
I'm actually away celebrating my birthday this weekend. It was actually my birthday last weekend, but the party is this weekend. My girlfriend's arranged a surprise party in a mystery location, so I might be sounding a little more tired on Monday. I do record uh, episodes live on a Monday, so uh, watch out for that one. And until next time, go out there, unleash your greatness, build your empire, make your impact, and live your ultimate life because you are unstoppable. Unstoppable.